Hi, I'm Konstantinos Komaitis. And I'm Jillian York. Normally, we only release one episode per month for our podcast. But there is nothing normal with the case of Ala Abdel Fattah, arguably Egypt's highest political profile political prisoner. We don't have a guest today. I will be speaking with Gillian. Ala is Gillian's friend, and I want to talk to you about this. Hi, Gillian. Hi, Konstantinos. I know that today's episode is not going to be an easy one for you, uh, but you and I have been having this conversation, and we've been going back and forth about this, and we both agree that this is very important. So before I ask you about... um, you know, what the current state of Allah is and why we're doing this podcast. I want you to tell me a little bit about him, his background, and where did you guys meet? Sure. Um, yeah, so Allah is a friend of mine. Um, he is a he's a coder, he's a free software developer, an advocate, a blogger, an activist, a father, um, and he's my friend. And we met in 2008, uh, at a Global Voices uh, Summit in Budapest, where I was uh, I was working for the Berkman Klein Center at the time, and we had just released a report that was documenting and analyzing the Egyptian blogosphere. I was a blogger at the time, and he was one of uh, several Egyptians who were, who were invited to that meeting alongside some other international researchers. Um, and I remember... I remember him just so clearly because, you know, he had some feedback, some pushback uh, critique of the report. And I remember seeing him from across the room and just like, it's just so smart, just so thoughtful and smart and, but like also passionate. And even though he was thoughtful, he was, he didn't hesitate to speak his mind. Um, And I don't remember if we talked at all at that conference. I think maybe I introduced myself, but we did meet again about a year later um, at an event in Beirut, and that's where we became friends. Um, and after that, you know, we we stayed in touch. That was so. That was two thousand nine, um, and we stayed in touch over. <laughs> remember off the record messaging. We we talked a lot over that. Um, we commented. I I looking through this, like thinking about him in the past uh, few months. I, I looked back and found you know times that he commented on my blog. Um, I remember debating you know, getting into to not not arguments, but like debates with him about things like WikiLeaks um, and about the, you know, the state of things in the world. And yeah, I mean, he he's really important to me um, and and important to Egypt and important to the world. He sounds like a, a wonderful human being. And you and I have met a lot of people, you know, like him, but he's also a fighter, right? Which makes him even greater. Um, what was his role in the Arab Spring? Because you you know you have been mentioning to me that he actually was not in Egypt and then he had to go he decided to go back so tell us a little bit about that yeah so so i mean yeah he he had this whole history in egypt um you know organizing like working on uh, the, the arab techies movement the arab digital expression summer camps that worked with technologists and students and you know i mean his work his professional work was mostly in open source and so he and his then wife manal um had moved to south africa together for for work um he was working there you know living there and Egypt, you know, was never never an easy place to live. And he'd already been arrested under the Mubarak regime at that time. 
um, for on charges of insulting the president. And so by the time the revolution rolled around, and I've written a lot about that in my book and elsewhere about kind of the conditions and the, inter- the role of the internet and all of that. Um, but by the time it rolled around, he was not there. And so Allah has, uh, he comes from an activist family. He has two sisters, uh, Mona and Sana. Um, and Sana was quite young at the time. She's spoken about this. Um, but like Mona was actually, you know, in Tahrir, was really involved. And Allah was sitting kind of really far away on the other end of the continent. I don't want to say helpless because he wasn't helpless, but sitting there, you know, not able to be in the square with his friends, with his family. Um, and I remember very clearly the second day of the uprising, the Egyptian government shut down the Internet. And of course, you know, people, there's been a lot of analysis over what happened next. Um, but nevertheless, like the social media and blogs had played a role in getting information out to the world. And so there's this media and internet blackout happening. And I remember very clearly one of the things that um, that we did together was he had a line into Tahrir Square through, through Mona, through his sister. And I had Al Jazeera journalists asking me if I knew anybody who could get, you know, who they could get in touch with on the ground because um, I'd been doing some work with Al Jazeera. And we together, we managed to connect Mona to Al Jazeera. And there's this very famous phone call where she's in the square talking about what's happening, talking about what she's witnessing, about the violence, about the, you know, the power of the people, all of it. Um, and that was, you know, this this call that we had kind of made come together. And then, you know, he and I, he was doing a lot, trying to connect people, trying to, you know, um, understand or see what was happening on the ground. Um, and he he and Manal made the decision to go back to Cairo um, amidst that. And I remember like it it wasn't really, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for him, but it felt to me like it wasn't a difficult decision, that it was what he felt like he had to do. And, you know, as, as you were speaking and a little bit that you have spoken to me about him, he sounds like exactly, I was thinking this thing, the fact that in, in this situation, that must have been one of the easiest decisions for someone like like him because you know he needed to be there and fight for what he really believed and i am saying this without even knowing Allah, but uh, i have been reading in preparation for this and one of the things that has really uh, uh, stricken uh, stayed with me is the fact that he has been writing letters all this time uh, that he has been in prison. And those letters are a reflection of his own thoughts um, about the state of the world, uh, about you know the, the state of, of humans and how we operate in this world. But one of his latest letters, um, which was actually on climate uh, change, because Egypt yeah. is about to host uh, perhaps one of the most important and biggest meetings uh, currently in the world, which is the Climate uh, Change Conference, never saw the light of day, right? Um, and yeah. c- can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why do you think this has happened? I mean, it sounds very, very weird that, you know, most of his letters are making it out. But suddenly there is this, you know, his his ideas about um, climate change and suddenly, you know, the letter disappears What's going on there, you think? Yeah, so I want to draw a line between your last question and this one, because I think that that really, it really says, it says it all. Um, So, you know, we were just talking about 
why, you know, how he he felt like he had to go back to, to Egypt, that he, you know, he went back to fight for his country and stayed there um, despite everything, even though there were a couple times where he probably could have left um, and started a new life somewhere else. And I think that, you know, it's important to situate what I'm about to say it under, like, in the idea that at the time that the revolution happened, Mubarak had been in power for, like, almost 30 years. Um, that was the only thing that his generation knew. So at the time of the revolution, I think he and I were both, we're the same age. I think he and I were both like 29. Um, and that was, yeah, it was like the only, the only government that he and that generation had ever known. Um, and so it made sense to fight. And, you know, now we've seen, you know, we've seen the changes that Egypt has gone through. He's been in prison. And I think what's really striking about these letters, Naomi Klein wrote a really great piece about this in the Guardian uh, on October 18th. What's striking about this is that he's been in prison now for almost, I think, a little over nine years, I think more than 3,000 days, um, with, a, with a brief exception in 2019. And he's sitting there by himself. He's in a cell alone. And he's writing these letters to his mother. And he's, you know, he's losing, he's losing weight. His body is wasting away as he's on hunger strike. Now it's been over, you know, well over 200 days. Um, and he's still writing these letters. He still has this incredibly sharp mind. I think his sister Mona wrote a skeleton with a lucid mind. Um, and so he sends this letter this letter that disappears, um, what he he explained it later that it was about the global warming because of the news from Pakistan. So he's getting this news in prison. He's seeing what's happening in the world. And despite the fact that he's been a scapegoat of the government, despite the fact that he's alone in this prison cell, he is still commenting on, you know, what's happening to people in Pakistan because of climate change. And so the reason that I, I give all of this context is to say that what Egypt is doing right now is trying to situate itself in the world as a normal country. It is hosting the COP27, the climate summit. It, it has, you know, it's launched this new, the new Egyptian museum. It's been doing all of these archaeological digs and getting a ton of press from like National Geographic, all of these documentaries about the findings. And I mean, don't get me wrong, that's really cool stuff. But um, Egypt is using all of this as a way to make itself look normal to the rest of the world while none of this is normal. Um, Ale is one of many political prisoners and he and his family would want me to make sure to emphasize that, that it, although he might be one of the most prominent ones, he's one of perhaps thousands. There's so many Egyptians who are in prison for things that they didn't do, um, for speaking their minds, for fighting for justice. There are also thousands and maybe even more Egyptians in prison for petty crimes because they're living in such poverty that that's the only way that they can survive. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I can't emphasize enough just how horrific this all is, how what, you know, Egypt hosting the COP27 summit is going to give it the status in the world that it wants. And meanwhile, we've got all of these governments all over the world. And um, let me remind listeners who might not know that Ale is a British citizen as well. Um, and the UK government is doing next to nothing. Um, they're doing nothing to fight for him, to, to fight for one of their own citizens, um, despite the promises that they made to us almost a year ago that they would. So that is all, you know, I, I, I find, I find it difficult to find the words to, 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 you know, when I hear you talking, saying those things, and when I hear that there is, you know, the possibility for someone to do something, yet we are like sitting ducks and we are celebrating, um, you know, countries for doing other things, but at the same time, we turn the, you know, the blind eye to very, very important things. Um, it, it's just, you know, words do not come easy. Um, I know that you're not an expert on Egyptian politics, but I also know that you have spent the best part of your career um, 
thinking and talking to people uh, in the Middle East about the situation there and the role of the internet. I want us to focus a little bit on Egypt. And you have mentioned that, you know, you have Egyptian friends and, of course, you have interacted with Allah quite a bit. Um, Why do you think Egypt, what happened in Egypt between 2011, when was the Arab Spring, and 2022? Because to me, sitting from the outside and really reading what you have written and, of course, your book and also some other um, articles, uh, it, it seems to me as if the the situation is getting worse. And by situation, I mean the democracy, right? And democracies are messy. We all know that. There is no such thing as a perfect democracy. But when it comes to human rights, and especially free speech, Egypt has the tendency of going from bad to worse. Is there any particular reason that you could point to why this might be happening? Yeah, I mean... Whether it's, you know, the folly of youth, the the, the feeling that, you know, <laughs> that a win was possible. I don't know, you know, but I can't, I can't put myself in people's shoes. Um, and, I, you know, I, I spent minimal time in Egypt and a lot of time with my friends from Egypt and other parts of the world, you know, in, in Berlin, in Beirut, etc. Um, but what I can say, you know, from all of these conversations is that I think at one point there was real hope. I think there was a real belief from a lot of people that change was possible. Um, that when Ben Ali fell in Tunisia and then Mubarak fell in Egypt, that there was an opportunity. And, you know, I mean, what can I say about what went wrong? I think a lot of things, right? I I don't think it's the fault of any of the people who fought so hard for this. I think it's the of fault not. of the, yeah. you know, the gerontocracy in power, um, you know, throughout the world, but also in Egypt, that you had the Muslim Brotherhood uh, step in, make a lot of mistakes in doing so. Um, but, you know, for some people, they represented freedom. For other people, they represented um, something much worse. And then you've got the military that comes and sweeps in and says that they're going to solve all the problems. And it was a coup. I mean, essentially what happened was a military coup um, from, again, like men who wanted to to hold on to their power despite the youth wanting to see something different happen, some change, um, something new, freedom, um, democracy. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a story that's been replicated in a lot of countries all over the world. I know, you, you know you're you from Greece. Like, I know you, you are also aware of your country's history and having gone through this too. The U.S. has gone, you know, I, I'm not making sense anymore because I'm just, uh, yeah, it, it all is, it's all heartbreaking. Um, and I think that that hope, that hope that was there for so many of us around the world a decade ago is just, it's just gone. Um, and yet Ale is still there, still despite being having been on hunger strike for more than 200 days. Um, it seems like, you know, he's still hanging on to some hope that there is something better. Yeah, uh, thank you for this. And I, I know this is difficult. So, you know, I will, let's try to keep this short. I have a couple of questions, especially in the, the, those last two questions are more, for our listeners, first of all, um, you've mentioned that Allah, you know, has so many different um, identities. He's a hacker. He's a, he's a coder. He's a, he's a beautiful writer. He's a father. What would you say, in a nutshell, has been his contribution to the internet? Considering that this is the internet of humans, and people who are listening need to, you know, I hope that they will get inspired by people like him. 
Yeah. Well, so lest he get in trouble, I just want to clarify, he's not a hacker, but he is all of those other things. Um, and yeah, I mean, his Sorry. contributions to the internet are huge. I mean, he read, no, no, it's okay. Uh, just, you know, just want to be safe. Um, his, I mean, his contributions are huge. You know, he, in the, in the early days, like of blogging, he, he blogged in Arabic and in English, also ran a blog aggregator. Um, he, you know, he helped bring together students in Egypt, uh, to this this program called the um, Arab Digital Expression Camps that that I mean he wasn't you know he was wasn't the founder the founders are also really incredible people um, but had you know worked with young people to get them excited about coding excited about free free and open source uh, software um, I mean I I think his contributions are huge and he also you know I mean huge on Twitter too over a hundred thousand followers before that was really even a thing um, so he was a voice I think he's in some ways one of the biggest voices of his generation in Egypt, um, but not just a voice, also a technologist, also an advocate, and, you know, really like a a, a man of many talents. Um, and his book that came out last year, You Have Not Yet Been Defeated, is one of the most powerful things I've ever read. In fact, I've been savoring it. I still haven't finished it because I've been reading it bit by bit um, as time goes on in, you know, in the... <laughs> in the hopes that it will remind me that, you know, we haven't all yet been defeated. Um, yeah, I know my, I know, hard to talk I, about. I um, know. I, and I am so sorry, but he, you know, hearing you talking about him and all his contributions, he, you know, the internet was yeah. created for people like him. And I think that it is important to never forget that, you know, that there are these people because there's so much noise and so much silly noise currently surrounding the internet. And this is what the internet has meant to people like him. Um, I will just wrap it up with our last question, uh, Gillian. I know that the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the organization that you are working for, and other civil society organizations have started a campaign um, under the hashtag FreeAlla. Um, tell us a little bit about it and how the internet, and by that I mean how we all as users uh, can perhaps help. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we, EFF has been supporting this campaign for a long time. We didn't start it. We're just one, one player of many in it. Um, I'm actually not sure who started the hashtag. Um, I, it's a good question, but nevertheless, I mean, there have been so many people, international Egyptian and, you know, just so many people supporting this case, um, so many organizations supporting this case, because we all see um, that he deserves to be free, um, that he, you know, the charges that that are that he's been up against are not fair. They're not just, um, they're not accurate. And so, yeah, this campaign, um, it's, it's not just an online campaign. His sisters have been, you know, conducting a sit-in um, in the UK, um, to get the government to act. There have been people supporting that from all over the world, people who've flown in, including Greta Thunberg, which is, I think, you know, really just speaks to how much this case resonates with so many different people. Um, and yeah, it, you can look at the hashtag. I mean, I know this is a weird time to direct people to Twitter, um, but nevertheless, <laughs> I think it's still, it does, you're right. Like it does speak to, you know, who the internet is for and the importance of all of this. Um, two days, he will have ceased to take in any form of nutrition, including water. Um, in two days, I mean, you know, we don't, 
I'm I'm trying to remain hopeful that governments will finally step in and do something. Um, but this is a really scary time. And so any support that people can give, you can go to freeale.net. Um, there are a number of petitions out there, but that one directs uh, you. But I mean, really, <laughs> we just say call your representatives, call your, you know, your your members of parliament, your senators, your congresspeople, wherever you are in the world, um, please, please do what you can to um, get Western governments to act and push the Egyptian government so that they have no choice but to release him and send him back to his family. And I might also add for anyone who is following the climate conference next week and starts tweeting about it, add the hashtag free Allah. It's going to it's going to help even a little bit, but it might help. Gillian, thank you so very much for having this conversation. Um, uh, I know it's it, it is difficult, um, and to all our um, audience, thank you very much for listening. And keep Allah in your in your minds and in your tweets and everything that you write about. Thank you so much. Thank you, Constantinos, and thank you everyone for listening.